0: This episode of the Beauty Industry Podcast was brought to you by Candela Medical, growing your practice with the latest treatment technology, science, results, and trust. Hello and welcome to the Beauty Industry Podcast, your online support community for the professional beauty industry. I am your host, founding director of Beauty Industry, Tamara Reid. Here, we are closing the competitive gap and speaking your language. This is a platform created and dedicated to the professional beauty industry, valuing community over competition. We serve to help connect you with inspiration from industry experts, expand your knowledge through educational pieces and bring you the latest in product and technology innovation. This is Beauty Industry. Today, my guest is Kirsten Cascia of Candela Medical, Australia and New Zealand. Kirsten is a clinical educator for Candela Medical, which, despite being based in Melbourne, has clientele across Australia and New Zealand. Kirsten obtained a Bachelor of Dermal Science and has been an influence in the industry for the past 25 years, specialising in beauty and aesthetic devices. Kirsten is now responsible for the education and training of the medical devices in Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania with Candela Medical and today she shares with us an insightful look into the cause and condition of epidermal versus dermal pigmentation. A valuable episode for all treating therapists, clinicians and estheticians who are wanting to gain further treatment results with their clients when using devices for the management of pigmentation. From Candela Medical, here's Kirsten and I for Bute Industry. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining me today on the Bute Industry podcast. Oh,
1: thank you so much for having me, and it's my pleasure, Tamara.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I am so excited to record this episode with you because we have been inundated with questions on epidermal and dermal pigment and all of the things, and that's what we're going to chat about today. But first of all, I'd like to know a little bit about you and how you entered into the professional beauty industry.
1: Um, Yeah, well, uh, thanks again, Tamara, and it's it's great talking and it's great I'm um, chatting to the beauty industry via podcast now. Um, I'm finding that we're doing a lot of online training within our industry, and um, and and I think you know, thanks to COVID or not thanks to COVID, um, we can reach um, so many more people out there um, via this tool. So. Back in the day, um, many, many, many years ago, I entered the beauty therapy industry straight from school. Um, Being based in Melbourne, I attended Victoria University and I did my diploma of beauty therapy. And then some years later, I went back to um, Victoria University and I completed my Bachelor of Health Science in Dermal Science. And, um, And basically, that's how you know um i evolved within the beauty industry into dermal
0: therapies very cool i think dermal therapy is a really popular pathway of education these days um what was your first job when you stepped into industry
1: yeah well <clears throat> i uh, i was a beauty therapist within um a very well-known salon in melbourne in collins street actually and um you know we did everything we did and facials was our main uh, treatment and um, and so I became very passionate about the skin. I then went on to own my own salon. It started off as a beauty salon. We expanded into a spa and then purchased uh, a laser device. and so and that was at the time when I went back and did my Bachelor of Health Science. And I owned that clinic for 22 years.
0: Wow, good on you.
1: Yeah, so uh, so yeah, it was a really long time, and um, and I employed many many beauty therapists and dermal clinicians over the years as well.
0: Yeah, very impressive. And so I'm interested to know then what led you into the realm of education. Yeah, so.
1: I was asked by the U or VicUni to go in and teach as a sessional teacher um, many years ago in the beauty therapy course, which I did. And I really loved it. I found that um, teaching the students um, keeps you really up to date with, um, with the latest information. And um, so working in the salon and teaching the beauty therapists or, or teaching my beauty therapist within, within the salon um, helped me a lot. And, and I guess um, when I went on to um, teach at VU in, in the, um, we, we had um, a clinic within our dermal therapies um, course. And so I would go in there and just, um, I guess, oversee some of the, the treatment. And and I found that um, you know having a clinic working hands on also helped me with teaching as well. So doing the both doing both at the time was a lot of work, but I just found that they that that they helped me in both areas because you know being being a teacher full time you can lose contact with the industry at some point in time um, and vice versa. So I taught at the U as the sessional teacher for some years, uh, and then when I sold my business, I went on to uh, work um, as a postgraduate trainer for Alabache for a few years, um, teaching in ingredient technology. And whenever a new product came, you know, out or if they launched a new product, then I would go into the into the salons and teach the girls um, about the ingredients and how to use it and how to integrate it into their, into their facial treatments. And then um, finally to where I am now as the clinical trainer for Candela in light-based technology. So I've moved from, uh, evolved, I guess, from being in the salon uh, to where I
0: am now. Yeah. And I love the point that you make there is that when you are a teacher or a trainer or an educator, you have to be really practical. You have to make sure that you're still upskilling your own knowledge, that, you know, you're immersed in industry because things are so fast evolving and changing. And if you're just constantly teaching the same thing every day with your head in the sand, sometimes you can try and teach something that's not quite practical when it actually comes to performing the treatment in the treatment room. So I really like what you've said there.
1: Yeah, it's really important to, um, to, to keep up to date. In fact, you know, we're constantly having um, Zoom meetings to, to make sure that the, um, that the information that, that we're, we're passing on is up to date and it is correct. And I, you, know, you can just take the example of um, legislation throughout Australia with um, the use of light-based devices and, um, you know, when we first started using them, Queensland, WA and Tasmania um, had really, really strict legislation and Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia, nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and that is the same um, as it is today, although the other three states um, have changed their legislation and you are able to get a laser licence and you are able to obtain Or you are able to use lasers now in those particular states. So you need to keep up to date with everything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to explore the topic today of epidermal and dermal pigmentation. And I think, as you're saying, you know, keeping up to date with everything, we've even seen the impact of COVID and stress and responsiveness on pigment. So, I mean, even just one pandemic has really changed the way that we look and and treat client skin conditions. But before we kind of go too far deep, I'd love to just start back at the basics. Can you just tell us what's the difference between epidermal and dermal pigmentation?
1: Yeah, okay. So I I think it is important to go back to the basics. Uh, And so to understand epidermal and dermal pigment, you really have to have a good understanding of the layers of the skin. We have three layers of the skin. We have the epidermis, the dermis and the subcutaneous. And the epidermis is made up of five layers four in the skin and five if you include the stratum lucidum on the palms of of the hands and the soles of the feet. Now, the deepest layer of the epidermis is the basal layer. And the basal layer is made up of basal cells, which um, are a single row of columnar cells, mainly melanocytes, but also keratinocytes. Most of the cells in the basal layer are stem cells. Uh, but around 30% of those cells are prepared for cell division. So those cells are going to divide, and with cell turnover, they move up through the other layers of the epidermis and finally um, become the stratum corneum, where we have layers of dead skin cells. Now, the basal layer is separated from the uh, underlying dermis, by something called the basement membrane zone. And the cells of the basal layer and the cells of the upper dermis are linked to this basement membrane zone by hemidesmosomes. Um, They're like little clips that click in to those layers. Now our melanocytes, um, which carry melanin, and of course the melanocyte is the cell that you know, we're, we're going to be talking about because it produces melanin and, um, and therefore it can produce, oh, it does produce pigmentation. And there are all sorts of um, um, types of pigmentation and benign, pigmented lesions, um, but ultimately um, it is the melanocyte that is responsible for all of these different types of pigments. Now, melanocytes are dendritic cells, and that means um, it is a different shaped cell. Um, Within the melanocyte, you have melanosomes that carry the melanin, and the long dendrites, they're like finger-like tentacles, um, uh, which uh, the, the dendrites are what carry the melanin from the melanocyte down those long finger-like dendrites. And the process is called transportation and they transport the melanin to the surrounding keratinocytes. Now, when there is hyperpigmentation, so the overproduction of melanin, where there is hyperpigmentation present for whatever reason, um, it's usually photo damage, so caused by UV radiation histologically the melanocytes are hyperactive they have been damaged and so therefore they are larger and they have more of these dendrites the long finger like tentacles and so therefore they are producing more melanin Mm -hmm. and this is where we can get um, a lentigo or melasma or some sort of um, dispigmentation and on the neck um, it's also known as poikloderma. So that's your epidermis and your basal layer very basically. Then we have the basement membrane zone which is, um, which is an area that separates your epidermis from your dermis. And the dermis is a a thicker layer. It is made up of two parts. We have the upper dermis, or it's also known as the papillary dermis and the deep dermis, which is known as the reticular dermis. In the upper dermis, there are many, many blood vessels. Where there um, is um, melanin present in in the dermis, there are also um, what are known as melanophages, Present and they are melanin-containing macrophages and they are located around or near blood vessels Mm -hmm. in the papillary dermis, especially when there is inflammation present. And we know that um, UV radiation causes inflammation amongst other things as well, which I know we'll we'll discuss a little bit um, further on. Now, if the basement membrane zone has been damaged um, by UV radiation or, let's say, from a light-based device, a laser or an IPL device, um, then this this, uh, layer is damaged and it can allow melanin to pass from the epidermis through the basement membrane zone into the underlying dermis. So I know you're going to ask me more questions about this. So um, I'll let you move on with that.
0: Yeah, very cool. You've painted a really great picture there of the three layers of the skin And I can even see, I always picture a melanocyte to look like a little octopus, you know, and as you're explaining those dendritic arms, I can see the octopus arms and, you know, those, those melanosomes, which you're saying, they're almost like little jelly beans almost that travel through the arms. They're the packets of the pigment, and then they transport and almost reach over to that neighboring cell and then just kind of deposit or place that pigment there. So you've given me a really good visual there. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> so when we're talking about um, dermal and epidermal pigment specifically in looking at the client's skin sometimes therapists have a really hard time in kind of recognizing which one is which just based off their eyesight so are there physical differences in which we should be able to recognize when looking at one from another
1: yeah sure so when When you're looking uh, at a client's skin and if you don't have any diagnostic tools available in in the clinic or the salon, um, then it is important to know that melasma is pretty easily easily recognised as being symmetrical. So if you're looking at somebody and you can see that there are patches of pigmentation on the face, um, there are usually three types. One is the centrofacial pattern, which is the most common pattern. I think approximately sixty percent of melasma is centrofacial. Um, then there is the malar pattern, which is um, predominantly across the cheeks and the nose. And then there's the mandibular pattern, which is can be on the uh, on the chin area, but also um, can be present on a, right along either side of the jaw. Hmm. So that's when you're um, when you just when, when you don't have any other diagnostic tool to help you recognise melasma. That is um, that that is the common thought that it is well it is symmetrical. Then you have your diagnostic tools to distinguish uh, the difference between epidermal and dermal pigment. And one of those tools that um, is available to most beauty therapists is the Woods Lamp. Um, and this is a UV light that has a wavelength from 320 nanometers to 400 nanometers, so UV um, light. And although it is harder to distinguish um, melasma with a a woods lamp on darker skin, um, what you're looking for is uh, the epidermal pigment will come up as dark brown and the dermal will be a lot lighter component. So you can usually see the both, um, especially on a Fitzpatrick three and four. I know it's very hard to distinguish on a Fitzpatrick five. So, A lot of clinics use a dermatoscope Mm -hmm. and in um, dermatoscopy, um, you can uh, get a more accurate diagnosis of of dermal melasma. Uh, Dermatoscopy can reveal a lot more information on the degree of the photo damage that has been done. Um, They can also um, give you an idea of the depth of pigmentation. And the other thing that's very important with diagnosing melasma is the vascular component. And so with the dermatoscope, it highlights the vascular component of melasma. And um, and of course there are other um, diagnostic tools, skin scanners, um, you know, there's different um, uh, skin scanners out there depending on um, which company you purchase them from. And they're available on the market to help with differentiating epidermal and dermal pigment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so when you were saying before um, our epidermal pigment, our epidermal pigment is sitting within the epidermis and they're pretty much the layers that we can see which is more superficial so when we're actually looking at them either with a blind eye or with a skin scanner or some kind of modality it's a lot easier to see because it's darker because it's closer to the surface so here we're talking about freckles or sun damage or lentigo as you mentioned before whereas um, when we're talking about dermal pigment so be that melasma which you said or even cloasma which is your hormonally induced pregnancy pigment because it's so far down in the skin and as you said past that basement membrane zone into the dermis it's much more difficult to see because it's further away from the eye and sometimes uh, the outside edges are not as easy so it kind of looks a little bit bruisedish or almost mottled mm. would you say? Yes
1: absolutely And um, and as you say the epidermal pigment is much closer to the surface so you do tend to see a more demarcated outline um so you're right one looks more um obvious it's 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 um it's got a good border and the other one can be a bit blurry like like a bruise and and a bit lighter in color
0: Mm, and that's when it creeps up on us and all of a sudden we're going oh now i need some treatment for melasma
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely
0: After the break, more knowledge on epidermal and dermal education. But first, a word from today's Beauté partner. And community, if you're wondering, apart from the incredible education provided like the knowledge shared in today's conversation, what sets Candela apart? It's their commitment. From the day you become a Candela customer, you experience a true partnership. With the purchase of a Candela device, you receive a three-year service warranty, clinical training for you and your team as well as access to their comprehensive marketing resources. Your success is their success. To find out more visit www.candelamedical.com.au And now back to Kirsten. Within regards to melasma, not melasma, sorry, epidermal and dermal pigment, um, can you share with us the causes of them? Are they both caused similarly? I mean, obviously, they're both being produced by the one cell, but they look very different. They respond very different. So what are those causes? Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think everybody has the general consensus that the main cause of um, pigmentation is UV damage, photo damage. Um, The sun um, can cause cell mutations, so um, it also causes um, precancerous lesions, cancerous lesions, and and it is the main cause of um, epidermal pigment. Um, Hormones, medication, Inflammation triggers pigmentation, stress triggers pigmentation, illness, and also the wrong use of light-based devices, you know, IPLs and lasers can also cause um, pigmentation, whether it is epidermal or dermal. Mm. Although um, there is um, quite a difference with dermal pigment, um, It is a combination of photo damage, but because there are no blood vessels in the epidermis, you will find that dermal pigment has an increase in blood vessels. Um, You usually notice that there is a damaged basement membrane zone. Um, There are also histologically, that is, and there are also an increase in mast cells Enlarged melanocytes with more dendrites, as we've mentioned earlier on, Um, melanophages, um, which are macrophages that contain melanin, and so therefore your dermal pigment um, is um, a lot more complicated and so therefore it is a lot harder to treat.
0: Mm, Yeah. And I guess when we even just step back to those skin layers for a minute, when we are taking a look at the epidermis, it's very much influenced by external substances coming into the skin. So as you were saying, either laser or IPL or just environment, uh, we're also looking at UV damage, incorrect use of products, for example. Whereas when we're looking at a dermal pigment, because it's down in almost the third layer of the skin to say, third separation, Mm. layer, it's kind of triggered a little bit more internally because it's not as if true sun can reach, you know, that kind of far, obviously it can definitely influence, but it is more so triggered by stress or hormones so it's almost kind of like you've got the outside world targeting the epidermis and that's how we're getting this epidermal superficial pigment and then you've got all of the thoughts and the things and the stress that you've got going on internally or our clients do that's also creating pigment from the inside out so it's kind of just like this never-ending battle of pigment from both sides of the skin isn't it
1: yeah, look, and and, and and also lots of things can trigger that melanin-stimulating hormone. Um, all of the things that we've mentioned and one that we have or I haven't mentioned is um, um, pregnancy and menopause mm. um, and both of those times of our lives can um, trigger that melanin-stimulating hormone, um, which is hormonal. So therefore, it can occur um, in women um, at any time.
0: Yes, it's very difficult as women because we go through so many peaks and troughs of hormones. You know, I guess we start going through puberty and that's when the menstrual cycle comes on. And then, you know, a little bit later down the track, we start to develop more breast tissue and, uh, you know, we start to become pregnant. And then all of a sudden we have, you know. Two or three kids, if that, if we're lucky enough, and then we go through menopause. So it's kind of just like at every single century, we're just hit with another big rush of hormones, um, which is constantly just triggering that melanocyte.
1: Exactly.
0: Fun times ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So then tell me, um, in the case of treating a client with epidermal pigments, that's that surface pigment, what's your go to treatment modality?
1: Okay, so first and foremost, um, depending on the Fitzpatrick skin type of the person that I'm going to be treating, and if, you know, for, for the purpose of, of, of this podcast, you also have to understand that um, you have to choose the devices that you have available to you, mm-hmm. or the modalities, I should say, that you have available to you. So I would always choose the safest modality, for the Fitzpatrick skin type of the person that I'm treating. Um, But for epidermal pigment, um, because I'm very, very lucky and I'm very fortunate to work with a huge range of light-based devices, I must say that um, for Fitzpatrick's three and four, I would choose um, the pick away device, um, which delivers energy in a picosecond, which is a trillionth of a second, and it is acoustic energy. So it is not thermal energy as such. Um, And so we can target um, the pigmentation in the epidermis quickly, easily. It shatters the pigment and therefore the immune system will start that um, repair phase and um, the pigment is um, taken away by the immune system. It is broken up, it is shattered into tiny little particles and um, very easily removed um, with very little downtime. Uh, Now, for a Fitzpatrick, one and two, if we are talking about Um, you can't beat IPL. IPL is amazing, intense pulse light. It's amazing for the Fitzpatrick's one and two skin types for ephilides. Very good for Lentigo as well. And you can use IPL on a Fitzpatrick um, skin type three. Obviously we do need to differentiate our um, pigmented lesion and make sure it is benign and it's not precancerous. So um, you always, always should have a skin check um, by uh, somebody who is um, qualified in dermatoscopy or a dermatologist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So again, I would always opt for the safest option, but those are my two go-to treatment modalities for epidermal pigment.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I really appreciate what you said there about um, checking out the pigment prior to treating it, which I think, you know, is something that we probably don't do enough of in the beauty and aesthetic industry, unfortunately, because our client's in front of us and it's just easier to treat. Um, But for sure, we need to be 100% certain that we are not going to further stimulate that little melanocyte because um, he is a tricky little guy that can go rogue sometimes. So um, there are brilliant companies. In fact, we've written about them on our blogs as well that you can go and have a look at um, who actually come into your clinic and will do that for you and takes away all of the trouble and then gives your client the green light to go ahead and have that treatment so um, I'll put that in the show notes just as a little side bit but interesting what you say there about Fitzpatrick one and two with IPL and then three and four with the peak away because it's non-thermal and so we know that um, a three and four if we start to stimulate heat and energy within the skin that can actually trigger more pigment so i really like the sound of that acoustic not heat based.
1: Mm. look it's it's so important Tamara, um that beauty therapists do understand that you can you know they're great tools but they can also make things worse if you're not careful mm,
0: mm, yeah absolutely so mm. then how does that um treatment differ when you're treating dermal pigmentation oh
1: yeah yeah, very very good point. Look, I although I do um, love my light based devices, um, I am a firm believer of using ingredient technology uh, for dermal pigment. Um, as evidence shows that if you do use an IPL uh, device on dermal pigment, it can rebound. It's very, very hard to treat with light-based devices because of the wavelengths that you're using. You would definitely need a long wavelength to reach dermal pigment. So if you were to use, and doctors and dermatologists are using the peak for melasma in the dermis, because we do have a longer wavelength, which is the NDAG 1064. Again, we have to note that we can't use uh, long pulse thermal NDA 1064 um, mm-hmm. for dermal pigment. So, um, again, I think um, ingredients are the uh, option uh, that you would choose or I would choose for dermal pigment. Um, and. Um, I also um, have read some recent information um, on oral transemic acid and topical transemic acid, which is being used um, now for melasma or dermal pigment, because back in the day we used hydroquinone. And um, although, you know, we were very careful and we would only use 2% hydroquinone, we know that um, larger doses can be stored in the liver. And there is also the chance of ochronosis, um, which is really nasty and also very hard to treat. So it's the, the melasma coming back, rebounding a lot worse than it was before because people were overusing the hydroquinone. Yeah
0: really, really um, scary,
1: isn't
0: it? Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, I just want to get your clarification there just for anyone who's sitting here um, who has maybe been out of the treatment room or hasn't really quite dealt with a lot of pigment um, in their client conditions and in their diagnosis. When you say the word rebound in relation to pigment, can you just clarify what that means?
1: Yes. So, Look, you, you can do a treatment um, and, okay, let's say, for instance, you use an, an IPL device uh, and you are, you have prepped the person and when we talk about prepping, we're talking about using tyrosinase inhibitors prior to coming in to have their treatment, which is something that I haven't mentioned but we highly, highly recommend for four weeks before you embark on um, a treatment for pigmentation. Uh, You do, you know, they're on, um, they may or may not have prepped their skin and they come in and they have a treatment and usually with a thermal uh, device, you will see a darkening of that pigment, which means that you, have caused denaturation of of the pigmentation, And uh, with cell turnover, it will gradually come to the surface and then it will look like a bit of a microcrust, and then it will, will, with cell um, turnover, it will sloth off the surface of the skin. So then you look at the skin and you can see that it definitely has lightened. However, within four weeks' time, um, or five weeks or six weeks, sometimes even eight weeks, that pigmentation will darken again. And that's what we mean by rebounding. Mm,
0: yeah, okay. So always uh, making sure that our client is prepped and making sure that we're using the right device or modality to make sure that we don't cause that rebound of pigment because otherwise the client's paid for the treatment, we've got them fantastic result, they come back a month or two months later and go, actually, it's back. Yeah, and of
1: course, sunscreen, um, mm. post post-treatment um, is going to help um, prevent that from happening as well. But, you know, there are other things in our lives that are going to um, cause um, a recurrence of pigmentation. Sun is one, um, hormones is another one, medications, and of course, our health. If we become sick for any reason, um, they all, all of those things contribute to a recurrence of pigmentation.
0: Mm. And I guess that's always why we, uh, you know, look at pigment as if the glass is half full, not overflowing and never over promising uh, what we can actually deliver.
1: Yeah, that's very important. Very good point, Tamara. Mm.
0: So do you ever combine modalities when you're treating pigment? Then I know you talked about ingredients before. Um, mm. What does that look like from a treatment level?
1: Yeah, so um, when we talk about ingredient technology, there's all sorts of um, chemicals available for treating pigmentation. Um, You know, you have your your vitamin A, B, C. Um, We can purchase them in um, high concentrations, low pH levels, and they're really, really good for targeting uh, pigmentation in the epidermis and the dermis. Um, I think, you know, people... People use um, all sorts of pills. I mean, I can just think of the tricetochloric acid at the top of my head, which is um, fantastic mm. for pigment. Lactic acid, there's another one at the top of my head that's really good for pigmentation as well. Um, but of course, combining your ingredients and your chemicals um, at the right time, um, you can create a course of treatments for somebody. And that can include chemical peels. It can include um, some IPL treatments. Um, It can include some um, laser treatments, whether um, your laser is thermal or acoustic, depending, again, on the skin type of the person. It can also include some fractionated treatments, um, which are, really good for not only treating the pigmentation component, but also for treating the um, textural um, irregularities on the surface of the skin as well. Um, So, you know, that's another um, uh, device that you can use, whether it is a sublative device or whether it is a fractionated laser device, Um, We can smooth out the surface as well as treat the pigment at the same time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you talk about texture there, it makes so much sense that we are smoothing the texture, desquamating the skin so that when we do come on through with a light-based technology, the light can actually visibly see and, pig, uh, and pick up and target that pigment. Otherwise, if we've got quite a rough texture, if we've got a skin cell that's been sitting there for 100 years, then it's going to make it very difficult for that light to get through and actually target the pigment. So when you're talking about modalities, it's it's all about re surfacing prior to would you say um, before treating with the pigment absolutely yeah brilliant and so what kind of intervals should we be considering when treating clients with pigment
1: yeah that's a really really good point um so first of all um if you're able to we do recommend that you always patch tests first um and that is going to give you um Two pieces of information, it's going to um, alert you if somebody is um, sensitive to the wavelengths that you're using, if you are using um, a device. Uh, and then depending um, on you know the, the skin type, you would wait one or two weeks before going ahead and, and treating them. And then intervals between treatments It's going to depend on, one, the age of the person. Um, We know that as you get older, the cells turn over a lot slower, so you will need to space those treatments out further. And also the skin type of the person that you're treating. We can usually treat a FITS one to three, anywhere between four and eight weeks for epidermal pigment, depending on how aggressive you're going to be. And then for dermal pigment, um, eight to 12 weeks again depending on the skin type and the, and, and what you're treating them
0: with Excellent. So good to know. I'm wondering if you have any parting advice for estheticians and clinicians who are treating clients of pigment. I mean, there's so much to consider. There is, you know, external and internal stimuli. There's the products that they're using. There's just, you really have to put your thinking cap on when you're about to treat pigment. Anything you'd like to kind of share with us there?
1: Oh, you so do. You really do. So I always advise people to have a checklist
0: uh,
1: and when you're in consultation or when you're about to do a treatment, go through that checklist. Have I checked for contraindications? Have I asked if anything has changed in their medical history since I last saw that person? Has that person had any sun exposure in the last uh, two to four weeks that Um, has caused the melanocytes to become active. Always do or always complete a Fitzpatrick skin assessment and choose your device according to the Fitzpatrick skin type that you're treating. Always prep the skin well prior to using a light-based device. And, of course, finally, uh, make sure that you have imparted really, really good Post care advice and really, um, uh, you know, nutted out what they need to do step by step from the first 24 hours after their treatment to then the three days after their treatment, then the seven days after their treatment, and then further on down the track as well.
0: Mm. There almost needs to be a checklist for um the therapist before treating, during yes. treating, and then a checklist for the client afterwards.
1: <laughs> absolutely. And I think, you know, you can't go wrong if that's the case.
0: Brilliant. Kirsten, thank you so much for spending your time with me this morning. I think our audience is going to absolutely devour this episode. There's so much value in there. Um, and it's always nice to brush up on our pigmentation knowledge. So really appreciate it.
1: Oh, look, it's absolutely my pleasure, Tamara.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode with a very knowledgeable Kirsten. There is so much goodness in the conversation today that you just might need to listen back to it again with some paper and a pen to take down some of your own notes which you learnt or even brushed up on. As with all pigment, safely, slowly, and steady wins the race, so ensure you're crossing all of your T's and dotting all of your I's before you start your treatment. If you've loved today's episode and think that somebody in your team or workplace would benefit from listening to this chat on pigmentation, please share it with them so that we can keep the education train going. For more information on Kirsten and pigmentation, you can find her on social media at Candela Medical ANZ, or you can even share your client photos and ask for our help in the beauty Industry Facebook community. Until next time, stay connected.